Hi, and welcome to the conversation. I'm Christy, and you're listening to Conversations to Connect. This is episode 44, where we'll be getting real about relationships with my meditation teachers, Lodro Rinsler and Adriana Limbaugh. I'm going to give their intros, but before we start, Adriana has agreed to let all of us experience a, a short sit together. I might recommend if you're driving to not close your eyes, <laughs> stay safe out there. And thank you, Adriana. Thank you, Christy. Thanks for having us on. So for all of us, maybe just taking a moment to find a seat that feels really sturdy and stable. It's letting our bodies land if we haven't already. And then once we've landed, if it's available to us, maybe letting our eyes gently shut and offering ourselves a few deep inhales, deep exhales. Just a couple of transitional breaths, dropping in, arriving fully. And then beginning to move our attention in towards our bodies, perhaps feeling the shape that the body makes. And that light pressure where the body makes contact against the chair, the floor. Taking in the texture of clothing on our skin. Temperature of the air in the room. Dropping the attention to the feet. Maybe just wiggling a toe or two, feeling our feet here. And space between the toes. And texture of our socks, temperature of the air. Feeling where the feet make contact. Just a bit of interest in our felt experience. And shifting the attention to the belly, the chest. Taking just a few moments here to feel the body breathe. And then again, perhaps offering ourselves a few deep inhales, deep exhales. Just a couple of exaggerated breaths. Maybe wiggling the toes, and rolling out the wrists, stretching the arms, just a little bit of movement back into the body. And as we're ready, letting the eyes gently open segueing back in together at your own pace, no rush. Right, so back to you, Christy. Well, thank you for that. It's such a wonderful reminder that anytime we can just simply land where we're at and that's a beautiful gift. 
not being on autopilot and rushing from one to the other. So thank you. I'm going to start by introducing our guests. First, Adriana is a meditation instructor, personal development coach, and the author of Tea and Cake with Demons, A Buddhist Guide to Feeling Worthy, which by the way, all of my clients have probably purchased by this point <laughs> because talking about strong and difficult emotions isn't something that we're taught. So that was a lovely gift. So her work has been featured on the New York Times, Refinery29, Women's Health, and Yoga Journal. She's been hosting group coaching programs for coaches and training at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition since 2009, which has given her the unique opportunity to work with thousands of women in over 35 countries on questions of confidence, clarity, and self-worth. As a meditation teacher, she cut her teeth teaching secular Buddhist studies and meditation at the Interdependence Project beginning in 2012. She's hosted retreats both internationally and stateside at Omega Institute and was a founding teacher at Mindful, New York City's premier drop-in meditation studio, where she served as a mentor and faculty for their 300-hour teacher training program before their closure in 2020. And Lodro. Lojo is named one of 50 innovators shaping the future of wellness by Sonoma. Rinsler's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Atlantic, Good Morning America, CBS, and NBC. He is the author of seven meditation books, including The Buddha Walks Into the Bar and the brand new Take Back Your Mind Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times, which The Buddha Walks Into a Bar was the reason, we'll get to that as well, <laughs> the reason why we know each other and such a wonderful uh, contribution to how we can connect Buddhism to our everyday life, which um, not a lot of people get to experience. So that's awesome. Lojo has taught meditation for 20 years in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and travels frequently for his books, having spoken across the world at conferences, universities, and businesses as diverse as Google, Harvard University, and the White House. Lojo is based in the Hudson Valley of New York, where he lives with his wife and their four-legged family of animals, all of which have sparkling personalities. <laughs> He has a cat named Justin Bieber. I'm sure we'll probably get to that as well. <laughs> so welcome, guys. Thank you so much for coming. And I thought that maybe we could start with, as we're talking about relationships, each of your relationships to meditation, because I know that your paths have been very different. So either one of you can start with how you came to be where you are today. Yeah. Well, thank you for those introductions, too. Um, it's really lovely to be here and yeah, I don't remember if Adrian and I have ever done a, I guess we did one podcast together a million years ago when we were pretty early in our dating career. But to actually answer your question, I have the odd fortune of having been born and raised Buddhist. So my parents had been studying Tibetan Buddhism for a number of years before I came around. And I had the great joy and honor of it just being around. So I sort of picked up at it at a, a young age and my parents sort of found me meditating in my room and they broached the subject later that night. And they were like, what were you doing? And I said, you know, I was just noticing my breathing. And then when I got distracted, I'd come back to it. They're like, yeah, that's basically it, which is true. I mean, in the most you know basic form of mindfulness, that's what we do. And so they felt encouraged later on uh, in my preteens and then teen years to start sending me in meditation retreats. And then I formed my own sort of non- familial relationship to it as in like I sort of 
differentiate myself at the age of 17 when I ran off to the monastery, which is actually not that dramatic. I, I spent the summer living in a monastery and taking on those robes and vows and so on. And it, when I say it was a differentiator, it was just this moment of realizing, oh, my parents never did this. This is all of a sudden now something, I'm doing something that they've never done. That means that this is my path. And um, uh, about a year later, I was running a, a small meditation group in university and uh, importing all these teachers to actually come in and lead the meditations. And at a certain point, I think they just got tired of commuting and they were like, listen, you've done the prerequisites. Why don't you go do a teacher training at this point? So it's been about 20 years or so of me uh, leading meditation as well and sort of balancing those two roles of practitioner and teacher. In my early 20s, I found Eckhart Tolle via Oprah, and that kind of resonated with me. And I started reading some books on Buddhism, but it was like, oh, these are really good ideas. But it wasn't until I was going through my divorce and I was like, oh, my gosh, this works for other people. Maybe I should try it. And my grandmother passed. You know, I know that Lodro had like sort of a trifecta of things in in his 20s that sort of I, you've talked before about it changing your path too. But when, interestingly, when that happened, I found Buddha walks into a bar and it was like, oh my gosh, this is for everyday life too. And I would tell my clients like this guy, he meditates in a bow tie and jeans. <laughs> and if you can meditate in a bow tie and jeans, you don't have to like have this scripting your head of like what meditation looks like. How did that show up for you to veer off from the, the traditional and into like our everyday life? I think that book was an interesting turning point and not in it coming out in the writing of it because I was so hungry in my 20s to find people that would have a conversation or write about the topics that I was going through in my mid-20s at the time. You know, not the divorce, but the first big heartbreak that you're going through. Not the midlife crisis, but the quarter-life crisis where you actually don't even know what you want to do for work. Um, how do you figure that out? And those sorts of things, I just couldn't find anyone talking about it and bringing the Buddhist principles into sort of the things that I was doing. I was spending, you know, a couple nights a week at a bar with friends and hanging out and dating and all that. And I was like, no one's talking about this. And this is, you know, of course, 10 years ago now. I think the, hopefully the world has changed a little bit around people talking about these things more. If no one's talking about it, then maybe I'll start the conversation. And that's what led to that book, The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, which as you said, is very much, how do we apply these principles to the reality of our life? Not some sort of lofty idea of our life, but the on the ground stuff. I think that's always been the big passion for me in terms of how we make the meditation accessible. Adriana, same to you. I think I, I had a much more conventional path to meditation where hearing Lodra mentioned the quarter life crisis, like that was very much my turning point of, oh my gosh, my life is falling apart. Hey, meditation might be helpful. <laughs> so I, I originally started meditating when I was in high school, I was about 17 and had taken a, a class my junior year of high school called a history of great ideas, which was a class on Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism. And I found Buddhism in particular, really compelling and, and terrifying. A lot of the principles that Buddhism presented and I started meditating around that time and didn't necessarily have any kind of support system or structure for continuing my meditation practice. I grew up in a very small town in Wisconsin. There really wasn't anything available to me to kind of help um, support my path. So at 17 years old, meditating, moved to New York City when I was 20, immediately stopped meditating, started partying, 
cut to 23, 24 years old, having panic attacks pretty chronically and very publicly. I remember multiple times just breaking down in panic attacks on the subway and this feeling of like, what am I doing with my life? You know, I'm not where I feel like I should be at this point in my life. I am not making any money. I have no idea what I want to do with my life. I feel incredibly lost. And my roommate at the time was taking classes at the Interdependence Project, which was a secular Buddhist hub downtown New York, right on the corner of Bowery and Houston, if you're familiar with New York City. And she was like, hey, remember that meditation thing that you used to do? That might actually be incredibly helpful for you right now, <laughs> like while you're going through some shit. And lo and behold, it was. It was incredibly helpful. So I picked my meditation practice back up. I would say, gosh, 2009. And that's when I really committed. That's when I really committed to my meditation practice and my study, not as something to kind of like see me through a tough time, but as something that could potentially even be preventative so that I didn't hit that point again, where I was chronically anxious and having panic attacks. And I studied there for a number of years. Um, I did a, a year long teacher training there in 2012 and started teaching soon thereafter. So that's the story. I'm sticking to it. That's a very good story and a very relatable one, because I think that for most people that I work with, all people, including myself, it's this in and out of like our consistency and our regularity. And we're noticing like even more so that we have our shit together when we're on the more regular side. I'm always fascinated. It was 30 days into my teacher training with Lodro. And I was like, well, damn, I'm eating better. And my house is a little bit cleaner. And you just notice how that autopilot, when you quiet it down, you're much more present and aware. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about that process and how it applies to our relationships. Speaking of relationships, the first retreat that I ever did, I, I had no clue what I was getting myself into. It was Halloween weekend in New York City um, with Lodro for two days. And I didn't know, now that I know going into a retreat, you sort of do this sitting meditation, walking meditation, sitting. I had no idea. And they don't warn you how long you're going to be sitting. So maybe like an hour and a half in, you're like, oh my God, this is never going to end. My mind is really messed up. <laughs> and at the end of it, you're like, oh my gosh, I have a lot more clarity. So Lojo, can you talk a little bit about what that process is like? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. So when people get going with meditation, there's so many modalities. And to age myself, back when I was coming up, it was basically like you would go somewhere and they would just make you sit for long periods of time. And by long periods of time, I'm talking like 45 minutes an hour. And then maybe a teacher would come in and give you a talk or something. And I think now we have more like short sits and more accessible things, which is great because a lot of people would sit for that 45 minutes to an hour and then never do it again because that was too much for them right off the bat. And, you know, sort of like pushing someone into the deep end of the pool. And these days we have a lot of people sort of saying like, let me hold your hand, I'll walk you in from the shallow end out. The flip side of all of that, you know, instead of just saying, okay, go sit for an hour, is that everyone and their mom has come up with some, this technique worked for me and now it could work for you thing. And this is my big complaint with our world of meditation right now is that people will be like, well, 
just say this mantra I made up. And like, actually, that's not a time-tested technique that can help anyone but you. I'm glad it helped you, but like that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to help others. When we do practice with teachers, and, you know, I mean, one of the things that Adrian and I do is we host this point meditation retreats, as you know, on our land where people get to sit under outside under a tent and actually be in community shoulder to shoulder yet socially distant and do these alternating practices and the practices come like every practice that we offer is something that has been around for thousands of years whether that is mindfulness of the breath practice walking meditation another form of mindfulness loving kindness meditation something that the buddha taught like all of these things we can trace back and say, you know, this has been really helpful for X, Y, and Z reasons for so long that hopefully it will then be helpful for you as well. So I think the, there is some importance here, and my analogy is always that it's the rough equivalent of playing a musical instrument. Like if we pick up a musical instrument once, we learn it just a little bit, but if we pick it up regularly, it starts to become in our bones. Similarly, if we picked up one musical instrument on Monday, a different one on Tuesday, a different one on Thursday, we're not actually learning any of them. So same thing here, where at a certain point, if we're going to pick a practice, it's almost like picking a major and then a minor in college, where it's like you major in mindfulness of the breath. And then you also might do some walking meditation, which helps you not only just break up the monotony of, of sitting and move your body in ways that are healthy, but also brings the idea of bringing mindfulness off the meditation cushion into something else that we do, which in this case is walking. So that when we, we have our morning coffee, maybe we can become more mindful of that. So there's some like logic around why we would do certain practices in tandem and why they support each other. Adrian and I have a friend who many years ago introduced us to a wonderful term, uh, which is fish milkshake where sometimes meditation practitioners will say, I love kundalini breathing and I love loving kindness practice. And I love, you know, this sort of yogic chanting and you throw it all together. And that's the rough equivalent of saying like, I love salmon and I love ice cream and I love berries. And we put in a blender and we say, this should taste good, right? But it tastes horrible. <laughs> so it's the same sort of thing. But within, you know, one particular tradition studying with one you know, particular type of teacher, uh, it's really helpful to try out a couple of different techniques and see what we really stick to. And then we can practice it daily, just like we would a musical instrument. So Lojo spoke about like different practices. And I know one that lands with me really well, Adriana, well, the, these are both my teachers, but um, that's an interesting story too. <laughs> I finished my teacher training and, you know, we do this mentorship. So I had six whole months of working with Lojo and it was so wonderful. And I remember afterwards, Adriana was one of the guest speakers at that um, in that class. And I really connected. That's when Tea and Cake with Demons was coming out. Um, and just like that point in my life, that was kind of what I needed. And on her website, people, they say that um, her practice is like a giant hug, which I totally agree with. You're average, just so open and kind. And so I, I was a little bit nervous when I called Lodro and I was like, would it be okay if I worked with Adriana? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I really like her too. <laughs> thought, okay, good. Because yeah, I think it's so important to be consistent with the person that you're working with and those practices. And Lojo was talking about walking meditation, but also loving kindness. So Adriana, I wanted to know if you could talk to us about what the practice of loving kindness is and how people might use that. I hate hearing all the time, like how divisive things are, but we are very much in an othering 
state and society in on multiple levels. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about loving kindness and how people might connect to that. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. It's a wonderful practice. If any of us are unfamiliar with loving kindness practice, it is a traditional meditation that's very procedural. And I think if anybody like myself has kind of a bent towards more linear thinking, or you like to work with lists, you like things that are organized, you like to have some kind of system or, or scaffolding that you're working with, this can be kind of an immediate draw of a practice because it is very procedural and that we're, we're working with certain phrases over and over and over and over again with a lot of different types of people who are in our life. And if I had to sum it up for myself, just speaking for myself personally, opinion, not fact, I think for me, the most profound aspect of loving kindness practice is that it is a, a system that was meant to put us in touch with the, the direct experience of our open, awake, tender heart by working through this very procedural kind of systematic way of extending different phrases to many different kinds of people. So going back to what you said about it potentially being an antidote for divisive times, you know, I think when we talk about something like love, the phrase love is so loaded. There's so much expectation and cultural baggage that maybe we've inherited around this idea of love and around who love is for or who is deserving of love. And oftentimes our, our scope of who we imagine gets access to this very rarefied space of love is so narrow. There's so few people, right? It's like maybe the, the, the five people that I really like, maybe it extends out to like 10 more people who I like am familiar with and I think are pretty cool. And then like babies and animals, that's it. <laughs> but, but then even only like really cute animals, not ugly <laughs> animals. Videos that you have to watch when you're just so down <laughs> and out that, you know, yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> exactly. Like, like this, this is who gets access to this very rarefied space of love. Would you say that it's almost never towards self? Because I feel like as a therapist, most people come in saying, you know, I, I say, are you your own best friend or your own worst enemy? And nobody ever says, I love myself. It, hmm. People say often, I would never speak to anybody the way that I speak to myself. So loving kindness lends to that too. That's a difficult one for people to sit with. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I think one of the things that loving kindness practice when, when practice regularly is so effective at is kind of expanding out this rarefied space of, of what we consider to be love, not only to the people who are easy for us to extend that, that kind of sentiment towards, but then also people that we don't know, the people that we just encounter at the grocery store or when we're walking down the street. And then also even people that we don't like, which I think is kind of a radical idea. Like, is it possible for me to generate a, a, a real sincere sense of generosity and benevolence towards the people that I don't necessarily agree with or even like? I can't stand you and also, <laughs> and also, I genuinely hope that you get everything that you need. And expanding out even further, as you just mentioned, to ourselves, 
know, is, is it possible to start practicing? And I think, again, this is, this is where the potential power lies in this practice, extending out that same sort of generosity and benevolence that we would to a loved one, to ourselves, which, you know, I, I think can be incredibly difficult for many of us because it, it's just not something that we were ever taught to do. I loved doing our uh, loving kindness teacher training because I taught loving, well, and I still at times teach loving kindness. And when you get to the part where you say, you know, imagine someone who's easy to love, you can see it on people's faces, like the smile, like the feeling of love that they have when they think of that person. And then for the people will say, well, the difficult people like screw them. I don't even care. But if you can picture somebody that you are having a difficult time with, and Lojo always says, not your arch nemesis or somebody who's been extremely terrifyingly abusive to you, but just somebody that you don't see eye to eye with and being like, hey, you know what? They have a family. They just want to be happy. They're trying their best most of the time, hopefully, um, that you can soften a little bit into like this idea of interconnectedness that is maybe one of those terrifying things that Adriana talked about. Some of some of these concepts are so big that it's hard to break them down. And I don't know if either of you have any ideas around that connecting with other people, but I loved it when, when we did the training, it was, I would be in the grocery store looking at the person behind me, like, may you be happy. This is an Oprah moment. (laughs) My mailman, may you be happy. (laughs) And it's just sort of cool to like put that ripple effect of good vibes out there. Any similar experience that you've had with it, Lojo? Yeah. And I I actually was just sort of nodding because that is such an accessible part of the practice, which is we don't realize how many people we actively ignore in the course of our life, that we go to the grocery store and we're surrounded by people and we don't even notice like that they're struggling or that they're having a really nice time or whatever. One of the things I, I think a lot about because I've just sort of been sort of deep down this rabbit hole, how do we teach all of these different elements of Buddhism is that practices like loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, uh, they fall under the idea of what we would call bodhicitta, bodhi being open or awake, citta being heart or mind. There's not a lot of distinction in this particular definition. And that it is a sense of open-hearted love, like free-flowing love. But even just saying open heart is actually pretty amazing because it's like if we go into a grocery store with an open heart, there's some sense of I am open to whoever comes across my periphery. And there's the habitual response that we have of, oh, I like that person, or I find that person attractive, or whatever. I like their suit. Or I don't like that person. That person's being really loud and annoying on their phone. Or as I said before, the active ignoring of so many others and to transform our relationship with the world around us so that we don't get so attached to I don't like this I like this I ignore this with the people around us is actually pretty revolutionary to remain open in the midst of all of it is pretty amazing and you know obviously with Thich Nhat Hanh's passing uh, that's someone who's been on my mind quite a bit it's a strong influence in my teaching and in my life and the pivotal shift for me, one of them at least, within my understanding of the teachings, was when he equated so many of the sort of absolute, really ephemeral to some extent, teachings of Buddhism as ways of understanding, 
understanding reality for what it is, understanding ourselves for who we are. And he said, understanding is the other name for love. If we can't understand, we can't love. So to some extent, the way we access this open-hearted love is through our ability, or at least willingness, to seek to understand the people around us. That we don't fall into, I don't like that person because we're on their phone. We actually tune in and say, oh, they're having a really hard time. I know what that's like. I can actually understand where they might be coming from. And that, if it doesn't lead us to love, it at least leads us to a sense of softening our judgment around them, which is pretty huge. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I had a thought that this idea of having bodhicitta, open heart, doesn't mean that you're in that state all the time, correct? Because I remember the first time Adriana saying, and when I was grouchy with Lodro, I'm like, oh, no, no, she is never grouchy, right, Lodro? <laughs> But I'm curious, I brought up the so tea and cake with demons, and I was searching, searching for this part that you talked about, and I couldn't find it. So I hope, Adriana, you can talk to it, that you, when you were dating Lodro, you said that he said the most romantic thing to you. Do you remember what that was? I do. I do. <laughs> it was about, about that. <laughs> yeah, it was, gosh, please correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. I wonder if you remember this differently probably two weeks into dating, he officially asked me to be his girlfriend. <laughs> we were going steady. He and I think me, by his account, he had a sort of secret crush on you for some time before that. There was a long lead up. We had, we definitely had a long lead up. We were friends for a number of years. And then he invited me to be part of the faculty of the nonprofit that he founded, the Institute for Compassionate Leadership. So we were working together at one point and yeah, there was a really long runway. And so when we started dating, it, it went very fast. Like we were living together within six months. And when he officially asked me to be his girlfriend, he said, you know, are, are you willing to meet me in discomfort? And I thought that was the most romantic question anybody has ever asked me because it's so realistic to what a relationship is where it isn't a question of, are you willing to, to only have good days with me from here on out? Are you, are, are, are you willing to, to kind of fulfill this fantasy that we have of what love is and what love should be in order for this to be a successful relationship? The fact that he asked me, are you willing to meet me in discomfort? Because that is such an essential part of what relationships are. Uh, and if we stand any chance of making anything meaningful happen here, there has to be a mutual willingness to be uncomfortable together. And so that just, yeah, that caught my heart. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, just to provide a little extra context, I was thinking back on that as you were mentioning this, because I think there was two things happening simultaneously. One was, we won't name names obviously, but there was a couple that we knew who were going through a divorce and it was, they had this thing that they would always say to each other, which is no bad days, babe. Like someone would do something really effing obnoxious to the other person and that person would rightfully get annoyed and they'd be like, hey, no bad days, <laughs> right? And it was this sense of like, what? <laughs> you know, in, uh, I think our world, we call the spiritual bypassing, right? Like, no, we're not allowed to feel bad, particularly in our relationship. And it was no surprise to either of us that that relationship then didn't last because it wasn't meeting reality for where it was. And I think the other point of context is very different that 
I think that was when I was co-teaching a class with a friend, Susan Piver, who wrote a book eventually on this topic. It was years later. She wrote this book on, called The Four Noble Truths of Love. And it's wonderful for anyone who's interested in this topic. And it, there was the sense of like the first noble truth in Buddhism is there is suffering and in a relationship. It's, there is discomfort. We have uncomfortable times. Like that's just a reality of our situation. And then the second noble truth of Buddhism is, you know, there is a reason for that. And it's craving that we're always looking for something more, which is also very much the case. I, you know, if I feel discomfort in a relationship, I'm not direct addressing it directly. I'm actually just spiraling off and saying, well, no, I wish you were like this. Again, I'm not meeting reality for what it is. And then very briefly, the third noble truth is there can be an end to suffering in Buddhism. And similarly, I believe the way that Susan talks about it is the third noble truth is meeting the discomfort together is love. And that is, you know, it's not the end of discomfort entirely, but it is like there's a willingness to meet it and be with the reality of it. And that can really shift it. And then there's a path forward, which is in Buddhism, the eightfold path, the fourth noble truth. And then here, it's just actually treating the relationship with real sense of mindfulness and compassion. So important because as people scroll through the reels of their social media feeds and see, you know, all the highlights of everybody's life, it's very easy to be like, these people have these things and I don't, or nobody ever has bad times. And I think it's so important to be able to sit and say, this really sucks. And Adriana's book is really good for that too. Can you talk real quick about your motivation behind the book was and why you felt the need for people to sit with things that are really difficult? Because I'm telling you what, with the clients that I work with, it's transformational when they don't, when they feel like they don't have to push these feelings aside and that they can actually learn from them. So I'm curious to know what that process was like for you. Cause I know that you said there was a little bit of self-doubt along the way and that even for somebody writing the book isn't quite sure like what these feelings are when they arise. It's such a, it's such a great question. It's such a multi-pronged answer. Um, but first and foremost, something that you just said that I want to highlight, which was such a big motivation behind the book is that I too have experienced how transformational it can be when I am not pushing difficulty aside, whether it be difficult circumstances or the difficult feelings that arise from difficult circumstances, jealousy, anger, shame, sadness, you know, I, I think there can be this sense of, of wanting to closet those emotions as quickly as possible, like create some distance so that we, we don't actually have to feel them. And, you know, to your point, how transformational it can be to say, oh, well, what if I, what if I actually developed a relationship with these emotions, one that was friendly and workable? You know, I think it's, it's Jack Kornfield, the meditation teacher, Jack Kornfield, who I read this just recently, instructs his students to bow to these emotions. Like when we're experiencing something like anger or jealousy or shame, uh, to, to bow to them, like they are a master teacher. Like how incredible that there are these emotions, the, um, these emotions that we experience that can completely blindside us and knock us on our asses, right? Like that is some true power. And to just have respect for these emotions without necessarily acquiescing to them, not necessarily kind of like handing all of our power and choice and volition over to these emotions to just like take the wheel and run us off the road, but to develop a really kind of like friendly, respectful relationship 
to these emotions. Similarly, I have experienced how transformational that can be, which was a big, big motivator for writing this book, because I think at the time, and, and the conversation has since changed a bit, I, I think, from what I'm seeing, at the time, a lot of what I was seeing in, in kind of spiritual circles and the meditation world was this sense of no bad vibes. You know, going back to what Lodro said of like, no bad days, babe. Buddhism, first noble truth, that being a human being, there will be difficulty. There will be discontent. There will be suffering. There will be uncomfortable moments. Um, and so I, I think just kind of respecting the reality of that and, and kind of asking the question of like, okay, well then how, how do we learn to relate to discomfort in a way that is skillful? And again, doesn't necessarily kind of like knock us off the road. And I think the second big motivator was the fact that I was teaching very frequently at mindful meditation studios in New York and these 30 minute classes, these 45 minute classes, when people started meditating pretty frequently in my classes, you know, I would see them show up day after day, after day, after day, after day, there would regularly come a point where someone would pull me aside after class and say, Hey, so like, I feel like I'm really getting the hang of this. What's next? What, what's like, what's that next thing? Because I'm seeing my mind and my emotions so clearly now. How do I actually work with the material that I'm encountering on the meditation cushion? And, you know, for the first few years, I would recommend, you know, you should read this book by this person. You should read this book by this person, this book. And I would follow up and say, have you checked out that book? And the answer was so often like, oh, no, I've been meaning to, that I was finally like, let me just sit down and write a book <laughs> so that I can put it in people's hands. Be like, here you go. Here's, here's some kind of framework for understanding what you're encountering on the meditation cushion. And then I think the, the third kind of big motivator for this particular book was that you know, at that point, I'd been hosting these group coaching programs at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition for a good decade. And I was noticing that I was working with primarily women from so many different walks of life, different cultural backgrounds, different age groups, different ethnicities, different religious affiliations. I mean, such a wide cross-section of people, primarily women, that was the, the kind of common thread. And I would hear over and over and over and over again, the sense of just not enoughness reflected in their fears, their concerns, their hesitations, sense of, I don't feel like I know enough. You know, I don't, I don't know enough. Who do I think I am to be doing this work? What if people see right through me? What if people can see that I'm a total fraud? And this, this sense of not enoughness that would be reflected in so many different ways by such a, a wide cross-section of, of women and, and something that I've experienced very intimately, the sense of not enoughness, you know, I thought like, wow, this is, this is really, this is really widespread. And meditation, and in particular, a lot of the core teachings in Buddhism have been pivotal in helping me to understand that and, and work with it and, and relate to it completely differently. Yeah, that was also a big motivator for the book of like, oh, this is a thing that a lot of people experience. Let me speak directly to it. 
And it brought up a thought for me, an angry thought, actually. Um, interestingly enough, because this idea of like merging Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy and psychology is something that's always interested me. And in fact, when I did the Shambhala um, meditation retreat with Lodra, I came across this book about, actually, it's right here. Also very good for the therapist toward a psychology of wake, awakening Buddhism and psychotherapy. And it always makes me sad when people have poor therapy experiences because they're out there. And when I asked you, Adriana, if you had ever, you know, gone to therapy yourself, do you mind talking about how that was kind of thrown in your face? Like, are you good enough from a professional? Because that's, that's a difficult thing to kind of work through and manage when you show up vulnerable into a space where you want to explore some things and, and you don't have the best of experiences. And then maybe we can move to Lodro because I know his experience is a little different. I mean, interestingly enough, when I first started writing this book, Tea and Cake with Demons, in retrospect, it's so obvious that if I'm going to write a book on self-worth <laughs> and the feeling of, of like being enough, just as I am, that all of my insecurities would come right to the forefront, which is exactly what happened. And so I sought out a therapist during my book writing process and the first therapist that I went to go see, we had our, our kind of initial session together. We sat down and, you know, she was asking me some questions that coming from a coaching background, I was like, what is the technique that you're using here? Mm. Like, what, what is your motivation for asking me these questions? Like, how, how is this potentially of, of benefit? to me or to establishing our relationship together. Like I was very suspect of some of the questions that she was asking me just coming from the background that I do. And I'll tell it, you real quick that Lodro told me it's because you're smarter than him. <laughs> and I thought that was, he goes, well, Adriana, she's much smarter than me. She goes into it with like all of these trying to figure out like the nuances behind it. So, and I'll let him <laughs> his experience, but I just thought that was so sweet. <laughs> and I wonder if you have this as well of, of like coming from some kind of training and in, in like how to work with people in, in this, in this respect, like if you have some technique under your belt is like, there's always one ear out for like, well, what's like, what's the technique that's being used here. And I, I think it, it kind of all fell through for me when she was asking me about, about the book and why I was having such a, a difficult time writing it. And I was like, you know, I think a, a big piece for me is the publisher gave me this advance check to write a book. And, and now that there's money on the table, it's bringing up all of these questions of like, can I, can I actually deliver the book that I want to write? Because it always sounds great in my head, but then the moment that I actually start putting it down on paper. And she was like, why would anybody, why would anybody give you money to write a book? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't right, know. Done. <laughs> I don't know. Why would anybody give me money to write a book? You're right. I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> so I'm sure that gave you a lot of juicy material to work with. <laughs> I mean, in some in some respect, writing the book was a true reckoning of like all of my own kind of undigested and unprocessed. Um, and a real quick question about that technique thing. Do you think she was trying to bring that up for you or for you to explore? Or do you think that she was being critical? I think she was being critical 
And I say that because it was so early in our relationship. It was our intake session. It was our very first session together. (laughs) Yeah. Like we, we did not have enough trust or rapport built at that point for that to be something that was appropriate for her to poke at. Yeah. If that was, I would a hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. Lodra. Yeah. Uh, which part of all of that would you like me to dive into? <laughs> what What um, is at the forefront of your mind when you think about where you would want to dive in? Well, you know, I mean, given our understanding of the work that you do and some of the things that Adriana brought up, I think, you know, one of the things that often comes up for me, particularly when we do meditation teacher trainings, is trying to make sure that we as meditation teachers know what we can and can't do. I always, as you know, uh, encourage people to have at least one phone number in your back pocket of a good therapist. Because there are, what when you think of the sort of people, I realized this very early on, I was my first job, I was running a meditation a Buddhist center in Boston and all sorts of people were coming in. I said, what do these people have in common? I said, oh, they all realize that they're suffering, right? Like that's actually who shows up to, some, to meditate. They're, they're like, something's going on in my life that I don't know what to deal with. I got to work with my mind because I don't know, I'm flipping out over here. So I should meditate. No one's like, you know what we should, I mean, maybe more these days, people are like, we should try meditation. It'd be a fun hobby. Like it's very rare that more people than not show up because they're having a hard time and stick with it because it's helpful. Um, and sometimes meditation can be the thing that people need to begin to grapple with some of the strong emotions of a breakup or a death or so on and so forth. And sometimes they need extra support and they need to talk it through with another human being. And I think knowing when someone is going through more than just meditation can actually help them, like having that sort of radar sense of, oh, they could actually really benefit from working with a therapist as well. And then there's no shame in that as a meditation teacher saying, well, that's not actually my jam in the same way as someone came to me and said, what should I be eating? I said, I'm not a nutrition coach, mm-hmm. right? Like that's just, I'm just because I'm in the general umbrella of what wellness, you know, like that's just not my forte. Adrian, and what can come up is some deep seated trauma. And I think from the um, pandemic, we've learned that everybody's had their trauma responses to not being it, the illusion of control being stripped away from them. So it is very important to know when, when a time might be and, and to be open to maybe the first person you meet with isn't the right fit for you. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned this earlier that even after the Buddha walks into a bar came out, even after I was established as a quote unquote meditation teacher, my life fell apart in a lot of ways. My best friend passed away. I was engaged to be married and that fell apart and I lost my job. And then a few months later, my father died. I was a mess for a long period of time. I mean, I'll give myself a year in there. And I was expected to continue to do some of the things that I was doing. And I feel like I was pretty honest with people. Like you, know, you open up these books. I'm like, I'm sort of a mess and I'm also okay. Like I have my stuff that I'm working with. And I also believe that everyone possesses some inherent wakefulness within them that we can tap into that. And that's the stuff that I, I love that. About. I'm sort of a mess and I'm also okay. <laughs> yeah. It's both. Yeah. And, you know, I think it was then that I wisely was dragged into therapy by a good friend uh, who's now many years later, actually a therapist herself. So not surprising that, you know, when I was really crumbling, she was like, all right, listen, I think it's time that you, we get you some help. And that, experience brought me back to the meditation cushion brought me back to myself and gradually gave me you know another modality for healing and that was 2012 so I'm probably celebrating 10 years with the same therapist and uh you know I'll meet with him tomorrow you know like this is just what happens 
And it is incredibly helpful, even though it's not the same. I'm not where I was then. Some of the quote unquote need may not be the same, but you know, it is incredibly helpful as another modality for me to work with my mind. So I think, you know, these things can go very much hand in hand. Not everyone needs therapy, not everyone needs meditation, you know, quote unquote needs, but I think it's still like a really good thing for many people to explore and see if it feels right to them. Yeah. And that idea of a longer term therapeutic relationship, I run a group on Wednesday nights and it started just, you know, let's do some processing and then let's do some yoga and meditation together. And we have the same eight to 10 people for the last six years. And it's so interesting to watch like people say, well, I can't talk about these sort of things with other people in my life, or I've done this work and it's really difficult for me to like be vulnerable with like people in my life, but I can come to this space. And I feel like you guys really had that with mindful that it was like a community space for people to come together and share in like a journey together. And I like that Lojo said earlier today, everybody's journey is different. So you can't say, oh, it will look like this for me too. And at our practice, I think maybe half a dozen of our therapists now are trained um, under Lodro from his Buddhist immersion and teacher training. So we really subscribe to the idea that these modalities really do go hand in hand and helping people get to a deeper level. Because you can sit with somebody, especially in couples therapy and talk in circles and have your arguments over and over. And the therapist is just nodding and getting paid. But what kind of skills are you practicing off the mat or off the cushion out of the therapy office in your real life and then coming back to and trying to process? So, yeah, I always encourage people to to not give up on that process. And thank you both for sharing that even 20 plus years of meditating. I hate when people are like, I'm bad. I'm bad at meditating. I can't make my mind stop. It's like your heart's going to beat and your mind is going to think, right? Is that kind of how you approach it when people are newer to the practice? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I think, you know, I think there can be a lot of misconception about what the experience of meditation should be like in order to be quote unquote effective. And so, yeah, absolutely. I find, you know, particularly with newer meditators, a lot of the conversations just revolve around establishing some expectation for what meditation is. Uh, And Christy, something that you said earlier in the conversation that I want to double back on, um, because I loved it so much as you were like, I realized after a month of meditating consistently every single day, like, oh, my house is a little cleaner. Oh, I'm eating a little bit better. Like, wasn't these big, profound kind of life changing, I've leveled up (laughs) to some kind of, you know, expectation of like what my higher self should be or could be is like, it oftentimes is, is these small shifts over a prolonged period of time. Like, oh, right. I'm, I'm just paying better attention and, and therefore making more skillful choices day over day, over day, over day. So yeah, I think particularly when, when we first start practicing, a lot of it is kind of just debunking some of the myths around what the experience of meditation should quote unquote feel like uh, in order to be effective. You know, as you said, the idea that, you know, we should cease to have any thoughts or that we should only feel good emotions and, and really instead shifting the conversation to, is it possible to simply be present, aware, open, and receptive to 
the experience that you're currently having, whatever that happens to be, you know, and, and noticing the way in which we relate to that experience, maybe the judgments we have around that experience, maybe the ways in which we want to qualify it, maybe the, the impulses that show up, how we want to react to that experience. That's a phenomenal place to start uh, and, a, and a great place to continue practicing potentially from here on out. That reminds me of Lojo's other book that I highly recommend to everybody is Sit Like a Buddha. And is it the first chapter where you're like, know your why? Why am I doing this? Yeah, like why am I meditating? Why am I entering a relationship? Sometimes people reach for Tinder because they're lonely and they don't want to feel that discomfort. You know, and I think this is sort of a through line of our conversation today. It's like, can we meet discomfort where it is, whether we are on our own, whether we are in relationship early on, always wondering, are they going to text me? Are they going to take me out again? Are we going to move in together? You know, there's always another thing to crave. Or are they ever going to stop doing the thing that annoys me? Or, you know, like it's like, there's always going to be something. So, so much of this is looking at the discomfort and saying like, why am I here? Why am I doing the thing that I want? Like, why am I meditating? Why is that important to me? Why is this relationship important to me? If we don't realize why it's important, then we are more likely to fall into tropes and and patterns that are harmful to ourselves and others. And I wanted to end on a quote that I have. Did you guys read If the Buddha Married? Somebody had given me If the Buddha Dated, and then she has a follow-up, If the Buddha Married, and it's finding love on a spiritual path. And I think that when people are searching for that, it's important to know that you have to know yourself first. And everybody thinks, oh, that's a really great idea. But I wanted to bring a quote out from it to see where this landed with either or both of you in terms of yourselves and being married. The quote is, to be in a true relationship requires two evolving people to attend to the trinity of I, you, and us. So real, when I do couples therapy, I tell people, you are individuals, but in this room, your relationship is the client, so to speak. So do you see that distinction for either or both of you? Have you considered that, Adriana? Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just in, in considering my relationship to relationships, or my relationship to our relationship, the the kind of pivotal piece of that statement that stood out to me is this idea that we're both evolving individuals, that we're not these kind of static, solid selves that will remain as we are forever. You know, that if anything, we're, we're much more of a verb than we are now, that we're constantly changing and evolving from day to day to day to day. At one point, a, a, a mutual friend of ours mentioned that you know, when, when she gets home at night at home from work, she and her girlfriend, who's her wife at this point, will sit down together and, and have a, a conversation that they'll begin with, who are you today? Who are you today? What's the material that you're made of today? Because it, it changes. It always changes. And I, I've found for myself personally that anytime I really get my tail feathers in a bundle about Lodro, It's because I have some kind of expectation that he should be showing up and participating in this, in this way that I have kind of boxed him into being Mm. like, this is how you should be behaving based on my preferences and based on how and who I know you to be. And there isn't a lot of room there for him to be different. And I think when we are staying open to like, 
we are evolving individuals, there's also this sense of like, oh, you can surprise me. You can surprise me because you are constantly shifting and evolving and changing. And I think, again, going back to what you said about the relationship being kind of that third party in the room, like a, a, a way of showing reverence to the relationship is the commitment to keep the finger on the pulse of who, who this person is today and just show up with a sense of curiosity. Like, who, who are you today? Um, I love that you brought up allowing that other person to choose who they want to be. And that that is probably 100% of the time not going to match up with our version of that. And even if I tell some of my clients, even if you think your version is better, they still have the right <laughs> to show up as themselves. Do you have any final thoughts on that, Lojo? No, I mean, I completely agree with what she said here. And you know, I, I think that's the thing that we, no one here who's listening to this would think I'm the same person I was 10 years ago, five years ago, even a year ago. And yet I think many of us hold ourselves to that or our, hold our partner to that standard. Well, why don't you like this? You know, when we met a year ago, you used to like this. Why, what happened here? Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't want to say it's lazy, but it, it's habitual for us to do that to say, oh, this is who this person is. We run into an old friend we haven't seen for a while and say, we sort of revert to who they were and what we know of them as opposed to trying to find out immediately what's been happening in the interim and we gradually catch up. But when we live with someone, it's hard for us to do that day over day. And I I think, you know, maybe instead of saying it's lazy not to, I'll say it takes real effort and real commitment to try to continue to revisit our fixed ideas about who this other person is that we're in a relationship with. Absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful note to end on. If you have anything else, Adriana, you wanted to add? That's exactly how I expected him to respond. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've been here long enough to know how this um, Thank you guys so very much. This has been so much fun. And we will do some links to both Lojo and Adriana's website so you can check out the things that they're doing. And I know Adriana has a retreat coming up soon, but it depends on some people listen to these years after they're recorded. So we'll get you in contact with them so we can see the new happenings as you both evolve. I'm excited to be a part of it. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. This was such a joy. Thanks for inviting us. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Conversations to Connect with Gretchen and Christy. If you like our show, want more information, and want to connect with us, go to our website at www.conversationstoconnect.com and follow us on Instagram. We hope this episode has given you some useful tips to create meaningful conversations in your life. If you feel like you would benefit from talking with a therapist, one resource is www.psychologytoday.com, or you can contact your insurance company. See you next time.